Tonight's talk is about gratitude and generosity. I'd like to start with a poem from Mary Oliver. Sometimes I feel like she's the uh, poet laureate of IMS because uh, we read so many poems by her. Uh, this one's called Philip's Birthday. I gave to a friend that I care for deeply something that I loved. It was only a small, extremely shapely bone that came from the ear of a whale. It hurt a little to give it away. The next morning, I went out as usual at sunrise, and there in the harbor was a swan. I don't know what he or she was doing there, but the beauty of it was a gift. Do you see what I mean? You give and you are given. And I like this poem for a couple of reasons. First of all, I like that she said it hurt a little to give it away. Um, to me, this is pointing to uh, the practice of generosity, the way we stretch ourselves in the practice of generosity. And then also what I like is, is the seeing of the giving and the receiving, or I would say the giving and the gratitude, the flow between these two. We could say that gratitude and generosity are two sides of the same coin, receiving and giving, and that both of these are about an open heart that recognizes the flowing nature of this world that we've taken birth into. Often the practice, or the Practice for lay people in the time of the Buddha was often described as having three parts, dana, sila, and bhavana. Dana is generosity. Sila is morality or ethical conduct. And bhavana is mind development. You'll also perhaps recognize that the first two are the first two paramis from the list that um, Greg spoke about last night. So there's these three parts of the path, generosity, ethical conduct, and mind and heart development. In the West, we tend to like to talk a lot about the mind and heart development, and um, sometimes we're slower to realize that the first two are just as important in our practice, and that the first two are actually foundational practices that prepare the mind that make it ripe for our formal bhavana practice. They're all intricately linked. They all work together. I have to start out by saying that gratitude and generosity weren't qualities that I came into my adult life with as um, well-developed. Their practices that I have found have grown, or understandings that have grown out of my formal meditation practice, but also conscious practices that I've undertaken myself and that feed back into the formal practice. Sometimes I think that because I didn't um, 
naturally have these qualities strong when I first um, came into my adult life that I'm actually um, uh, can speak about it because it's something that I've studied so much. Usually, or I used to when I would give a talk about these subjects, I would talk about generosity and then at the end I would talk some about gratitude. But recently I've started to shift the order to talk about gratitude first. I think that generosity without understanding gratitude for many of us can feel like it's some kind of duty that we have to do, some kind of obligation. I think there's sometimes a a little bit of cultural conditioning here. And in Buddhism, the flavor of generosity is very different than this. And I think that if we understand gratitude first, we can understand perhaps more of the flavor of generosity from a Buddhist point of view. In Buddhism, generosity is about happiness and about freedom of heart and mind. Different flavor than duty or obligation. So gratitude. Gratitude is receiving with an open heart. Gratitude acknowledges our interdependence. And for this reason, it's a very deep spiritual quality. And if we understand how much we're receiving all the time, it can help lessen the clinging in our hearts. That's the reality that we're all very intimately connected and that we're receiving all the time. If we think about it, even with each breath that we take, we're receiving. We're receiving oxygen that we need for life. And with each breath that we outbreath that we let go of, we're giving back. We're giving back carbon dioxide that feeds the trees, the plants. So with each breath, we're intimately receiving and giving back to the universe. Within this giving and receiving, there's the understanding of impermanence or flow or change in this world. I was thinking about this today as I was, I took a walk in the woods and I was sitting on a log over a creek or a small river. And I was watching the river flow and I was just noticing that the river gives and gives and gives, it endlessly gives. Even during a dry period, it gives what it can just keeps flowing. There's no holding on. And then I was thinking about the sun and the sun, how the trees take up the sun and they grow leaves and then how they give the leaves back. This time of year, they're giving the leaves back. They let the leaves go and they come to the soil and by my footsteps and by microbes and all, they break down and nourish the soil. And then from that, the trees grow strong. From the nutrients in the soil, the trees grow strong. And then one day, a tree falls over a creek and offers a nice sitting spot. 
There's a sense of flow when we understand gratitude and generosity. There's a sense of ceaseless flow in this world and that we become part of that rather than resist it. The Buddha said there's two kinds of rare people, pure givers and acknowledgers of giving. So those who feel gratitude, givers and those who feel gratitude. So gratitude is that acknowledgement of giving. It's an ability to see and to receive the blessings that come our way with an open heart. Gratitude, I also find, is a relief because it means that we're not alone. We're sustained and nourished by this universe. If we're alive, we're receiving, we're being given to. So this can bring for us a sense of warmth and intimacy and openness. We recognize that we are intimately linked and depend on each other that we're built of each other. We let ourselves be touched by the generosity of life. Sometimes I think of um, generous, uh, gratitude also as a, a nata teaching, because with gratitude we really understand and recognize our interdependence and that all that we are has come to us from others, has come to us from this universe. So sometimes um, when we talk about anatta or not self, it's frightening to people. They think that it's about a void or something not there. Another angle that we can understand anatta from is the angle that um, there's no independent self, that Everything is co-created in this universe, intricately linked to everything else. So we're part of a web. This helps us not to overestimate ourselves and believe in some myth of independence and that what we are, that we alone are responsible for what we are or what we have or our success. But we also don't underestimate ourselves because we see that we're part of a web. So with gratitude, we challenge our unworthiness. We, we allow ourselves to fully receive. Gratitude can magnify the joy that we feel in life and it brings the happiness of connection. A number of years ago, I was teaching in Chaswa in Burma, the place we've mentioned a number of times because it's so dear to our hearts for many of us. And I was writing a talk on um, generosity. And after a while, I, uh, I put it aside and I went for a walk. There's um, the monasteries on the side of a hillside on the Irrawaddy River. 
and um, you can walk up all these steps to the top of the ridge. It's a beautiful area. It's um, it has like six or seven hundred pagodas and monasteries in a few square miles. So it's very imbued with um, the spirit of Buddhism and practice. So I like to walk sometimes up to the ridge. It's a it's a bit steep. I counted once. There's five hundred steps up. Um, so, so I was walking up the steps, and this uh, young monk, must have been about 10 years old, uh, was walking down. In Burma, it's not unusual for uh, um, children to be monks or nuns. Often they're orphans taken in by the monastery and, and um, educated and raised. So he was walking down, or sometimes families have their children spend a time in the monastery. So he was walking down, and as, as he got close to me, he, he made some gesture for me um, to stop, or I thought maybe walk around him. But So I stopped for a minute, and then he put his hand on some pocket he had way in his robes, and he took out a handful of candies, and he held them out to me. Um, the monks and, and nuns in Burma are on the eight precepts, and um, as you kind of know, what there is allowed for the eight precepts. So candies are considered um, medicine. Medicine is allowed, and um, so he may very well have been holding out his dinner for me. <laughs> so he held out the, the candies, and so being a good Westerner, I thought I should probably just take one, right? That's the way you do it. So I, you know, I took one little candy, and he's like, no, he shakes his head, and so he then he, you know he puts all the candies in my hand, and um, and then he he went on down the down the stairs, and I continued, and I was so touched by just that connection, that the connection between us by him giving me a gift and me receiving it, you know I still remember this boy all these years later because of that gift. It was so sweet. So gratitude is, is feeling that sweetness of connection. We could also um, talk about gratitude as um, a quality that awakens the energy that we need for this hard work of transformation. It energizes the mind, gladdens the mind. When we feel grateful, our mind and heart are uplifted. It's lighter, it's easier to concentrate, to pay attention. Gratitude also quiets the mind. It's a gentle happiness that teaches us to be content with little. We could say that it quiets our um, inner hungry ghost. In the Buddhist cosmology, there's a realm um, known as a hungry ghost realm, and it's beings that have really large stomachs and small mouth and small throat, and so they're perpetually hungry, always hungry, always wanting. And I think that all of us have a little inner hungry ghost of some type, always wanting. And with gratitude, we can quiet that hungry ghost. There's contentment, a feeling of no lack. It fills that empty belly. 
And when we slow down enough to really receive the beauty and goodness in this life, we see that maybe we don't need so much to be happy. I'm sure some of you have noticed that here, that there can be moments of contentment with the simplest little things, moments of gratitude. I remember one of the first times on retreat where this struck me. I was um, washing dishes in the pot room and uh, it was winter. It was December, I think, and it had snowed and the sun was coming in through the window and there was snow outside. And I felt the deepest happiness, contentment, joy, just tears streaming down my face. I was so happy with so little, so much gratitude. I also think that gratitude is very natural for a heart that is open. And many of you here are experiencing the opening of the heart at times. It comes and goes, I know. But um, when it's open, many of you are also mentioning gratitude. When the heart is contracted in aversion, obviously we're not going to feel gratitude, right? And when the heart is contracted in wanting, in clinging, we also don't feel gratitude. But when the heart is open and relaxed, gratitude is natural. So we can cultivate a heart that sees the world through the eyes of gratitude. It supposedly works better than antidepressants. There's a Japanese therapy where um, people are uh, asked to make daily gratitude lists of things that they're grateful for. And apparently after a few weeks, they feel better about themselves, have more energy and feel more alert. List keepers sleep better, exercise more, and have a general more contentment. Another way I like to cultivate gratitude is um, at mealtime, sometimes I like to really contemplate the um, plate of food in front of me. And I like to contemplate about how if you make all the connections and really look at the web of connections that bring that food to us, that the whole universe is supporting our practice in that plate of food. Because in that plate of food, we have the sun and the rain and the earth, and we have those who work the earth and those who supported the earth and those who transported the food. And, and if, the, if the web just keeps going out, keeps getting extended, The whole universe supports us each time we ate a plate of food. For me, noticing that brings up gratitude.
The deepest gratitude understands impermanence. It understands that we can't hold on to what we receive. So the deepest gratitude is open-hearted and unconditional. Can we appreciate and be grateful knowing this truth? Another poem by Mary Oliver, for me, demonstrates um, a very durable kind of gratitude. It's called At the Pond. One summer, I went every morning to the edge of a pond where a huddle of just hatched geese would paddle to me and clamber up the marshy slope and over my body, peeping and staring. Such sweetness every day which the grown ones watched for whatever reason serenely. Not there, however, but here is where the story begins. Nature has many mysteries, some of them severe. Five of the young geese grew heavy of chest and bold of wing, while the sixth waited and waited in its gauze feathers, its body that would not grow. And then it was fall. And this is what I think everything is about. The way I was glad for those five and two that flew away, and the way I hold in my heart the wingless one that had to stay. So durable gratitude may at times um, carry the flavor of compassion, of caring in this world of change and unpredictability. So a while ago, I was reading um, one of the, I guess, our little newsletter from uh, one of the monasteries, um, Abhyagiri in in California. They have a little newsletter. I think it's called Fearless Mountain. And there was a whole um, newsletter devoted to gratitude. And they talked in this article about a few um, terms, Pali terms, that I found quite interesting. So the first one's katanyu. This is a person, one who knows what has been done for them. So a person who feels grateful. Then there's katawedi, those who pay back the debt. And then they put the words together, katanyu, katawedi, feeling gratitude and striving to pay back the debt. And in this article, he said this is the basis of any sane and fully functioning system. So when we feel gratitude, so it's not a duty again, but when we feel gratitude, there's this um, natural wish that starts to arise to want to, um, you would say, give back into the system, give back into the flow. A number of years ago, or very many years ago, when I was uh, 22, um, my first job out of college was working in Nicaragua, teaching English as a second language. And for a while, I lived with a a family of a woman that I had actually met when she was here on an exchange in the university, Marisol. So for a while, I was living with Marisol and her family. So Marisol and her baby daughter and her 
father and her brother and her cousin and her sister and a bunch of other people in a small, basically it was a two bedroom house, but one of the bedrooms was divided. So perhaps it was kind of like almost a three bedroom house. They were very kind to me. By our standards, they would, have, would be described poor. By Nicaraguan standards, maybe middle class. Um, and they always gave the best for me. I, I got one whole bedroom to myself when I just listed off all the people who were living in this house. And I, and I paid them a little bit, but it wasn't very much. They didn't ask for very much. And uh, they were so kind to me. And at that time, as I told you, when I came into my adult years, um, I didn't really understand gratitude or generosity, either one. Um, and I felt, uh, after I, you know, years later, I, I never forgot what she'd done, and I always felt that somehow I had not been generous. And it weighed on me. It was, um, it's like somehow I had stopped up some flow that should have happened. And in the meantime, Marisol and her family, um, emigrated to the United States and then to Canada and um, now live there. So a, a while, a number of years ago when I was teaching in Canada one time, um, I designated a, um, a portion of my dana to, to, that, to be sent to that family. And it, it cleared something inside of me. There was that sense that, sense that I had a debt and that um, to, to do that uh, freed my heart in some way. Marisol, of course, didn't think, she, think, didn't think I owed her anything. Um, but to me, this is a, is, demonstrates the katanyu katawedi, this feeling of gratitude and then this sense of wanting to pay it back. Understanding um, that to not do that is to somehow block up some energy flow. One, um, one description I, I saw of it is like um, a garden hose, that for a garden hose to work, um, both ends have to be open. So there's a, there's a receiving end and the, and the giving end. And if you block either, either end, the water gets stagnant inside. A number, uh, or a few years ago, I did um, a retreat and I did a lot of metta practice and I did it differently than I'd done it in the past. In the past, I'd, um, when I'd done metta for myself, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. But for this retreat, I, um, the, when I was doing metta for myself, I was bringing to mind benefactors that I'd had in my life and having them send the metta to me. So I was thinking about different people who had helped me in my life. And I was astounded by how many people there were. I hadn't really realized it somehow. My primary benefactor on that retreat I chose was my 10th grade um, high school counselor. He had believed in me in a time when um, I really needed support. He encouraged me to be a foreign exchange student, which uh, set my whole life um, uh, speaking Spanish and how much that's meant in my life, he set that all in motion. He would always say to me, you can do anything. 
And sometimes we may, um, if we're coming from a place of scarcity, we may not realize all the people who have supported us, people that we may have forgotten. And contemplating that, I just got the sense that I could spend the rest of my life trying to repay all the kindness and support that I've received, and I wouldn't be able to do it. And that was a beautiful feeling, feeling of gratitude. So we naturally move from gratitude to giving. It's natural to want to give when we see how much we receive, when we see how connected we are. So the characteristic of generosity, according to the Buddhist text, is letting go. So we're back to um, Annie's talk on the first night when she said that what we're going to be talking about and over and over again in so many ways is letting go. So letting go includes the idea of non-clinging, non-attachment. Generosity is a physical manifestation of the heart of non-clinging. It's an expression of our deep understanding of non-clinging. It's uh, an expression of our understanding that non-clinging leads to happiness. So the practice of giving aids us in the purification of the mind and the heart. Through giving, we strengthen non-attachment, non-clinging. Giving giving is an antidote to greed and craving. So when we give something or give of ourselves, we reduce um, attachment. And when we make a habit of giving, we weaken the mental factor of craving in the mind and heart. We release clinging. Giving practice is great because it shows us where we're still attached. And we learn to stretch ourselves and we learn that we don't need to hold on. This, um, in, in this retreat, as you know, we give a talk every night, and sometimes uh, if we want to give the same talk, we have to negotiate among ourselves. And so um, early in this retreat, it was decided that it was negotiated and decided that I would give this talk because I wanted to give this talk. And then a while ago, a few days ago, um, the possibility was arisen, arose. The possibility arose that somebody else might give the talk. And um, my instinctual reaction was um, to hold on, that I had planned to give this talk and, and I had prepared to give this talk. And um, it is kind of ironic to think of holding on to a talk about giving. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But so I kind of let, you know, that sink in. And then, um, you know, I just was paying attention to my reaction and uh, what I was doing. 
And I saw that it was suffering. I saw that it was, um, it just wasn't pleasant. And I realized I could let it go. And then I realized that it would actually make me happy to help out this other person and let them give this talk. And then things changed again and the talk came back to me. Um, But this is the practice of giving, is like watching how we relate to giving or holding on and seeing that holding on is unhappiness, it's suffering, and that letting go and giving brings joy, brings happiness. I felt so much better when I let go of the talk. Here's a quote that I um, really uh, have enjoyed. It really stretches me, so I like to read it every once in a while. It's um, the author's E.J. Gold from Gnosis Magazine. Apparently he teaches uh, some kinds of workshops. He says, there's a kind of school where you arrive saying, what can I get, or how is this good for me? You see, I had workshops. I figure I must have had 20,000 people through my workshops in 37 years. Most people asked, what is this going to do for me? My answer is always the same. This is not for you. It is not for your benefit. You're not supposed to get anything out of this at all. If you do, you'll be very fortunate because I never have. All you do is give. That's the whole thing. You just give and give and give. And it costs you to give. You even have to pay to give. And in the end, you have nothing, just nothing. Now, if you can handle that, you belong here. I think that's actually quite beautiful. I think in a way that's what we do when we practice. All the um, challenges that we meet every day on a day of retreat, all the ways that we suffer during practicing, in some ways that's paying to give because in the end we give our practice back. We give our practice to all the people that we contact when we leave here, all the ways that we serve more clearly and with a more open heart. So as I said, the Buddha, the Buddha taught that generosity was, is about happiness. A quote from the Buddha says, generosity brings happiness at every stage of its expression. We experience joy in forming the intention to give. We experience joy in the actual act of giving something. And we experience joy in remembering the fact that we have given. And for me, as I said, this was something that I felt that I needed to learn. 
one time I did a Donna, I called it a Donna retreat. I did it, um, a self-retreat at the end of the year. And at the end of the year is when I tend to do charitable giving. So I decided to do it very consciously in this retreat. And so every night on this retreat, I would write out a check to a different foundation or a different teacher or a different institution. And I would consciously do this reflection before and during and after I was giving. So before I was going to write the check and give, I would think about who was going to receive it. And I would notice that the happiness that would arise in my heart and mind to be giving it to them. And then when I was writing the check again, I would reflect on that. And afterwards, I would reflect on it. It was a really lovely retreat. It, um, for me, it was, it was like reinforcing that joy of, of generosity so that I could more deeply understand it. Also so that I could counteract some of my conditioning that um, would cause me to hold back. And it was kind of fun because sometimes I would take a check that I'd written and then I would look at it and go, nope, I would rip it up and I would write one that was bigger. It was fun. <laughs> so just as gratitude enlightens the mind and, and makes it uh, energized for practice, generosity does the same. If we remember a time that we are generous, it usually will lighten the mind, bring joy, bring happiness, and a happy mind is easier to work with in meditation. It concentrates more easily. So you could say that generosity makes our meditation soil rich so that things will grow. Our dear friend Toad probably had pretty rich soil because his plants finally did grow, right? So plants don't grow well in weak soil. Generosity and sila practice help strengthen our, our soil, our meditation field. So this is why it's sometimes called a foundational practice that offers protection And we need this sense of protection if we're going to practice deeply. It gives us a container to hold the process of transformation. So if, if we've created a world that's one of scarcity, alienation, and holding on, it'll be harder to go deeper. We'll, we'll be less likely to trust. But if we've created a world out of our kindness and generosity, or created that kind of a world, we find it easier to relax and easier to trust. Easier to go deeper in practice. Visiting Burma has also been really inspiring for me um, for developing this quality of generosity because Donna is um, so ingrained in the culture there. It's not to say that we don't have generosity also in, in this country, but there it's so weaved into the fabric of life that it's, um, 
it's really inspiring is the only way I can put it. So when we would give um, dana to the monks and the nuns there, uh, they celebrate it. They have us come forward, they chant, they enjoy the merit. They really, um, sometimes here in the West, it's like we give and we kind of hide it. There it's like, it's really out in the open. And they also get quite happy enjoying other people being generous. One time I went out to buy Buddha statues. It's one of the things I love to do in Burma is buy Buddha statues. So I went out to buy um, a number of statues to bring back for um, volunteers in the meditation center that I run over in western Massachusetts. And I also was bringing back a, a, a fairly good-sized, I don't know, maybe 18 inches, two-foot um, Buddha uh, to, to donate to the center. So I came back at lunchtime. I had all my bags, and um, there are a number of, of women who, who serve the food at this retreat who I've become friendly with. And uh, they wanted to see what I had bought. They were very excited about it. So I unwrapped all the little statues. And so I showed them the statue that was going for the meditation center. And I said, um, I don't speak much Burmese. Uh, I'm working on it right now. But um, I put together a sentence that I, they understood. And the sentence was, um, Dana, so giving generosity, Dana. Yekta, Yekta means meditation center, so Dana Yekta America. <laughs> and um, there were three of them sitting there, and they all spontaneously put their hands together and said, Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu to me. And so Sadhu means well said or well done. I was, you know, I was like, whoa, shocked. But it was, you know, they didn't consult with each other. It was just like automatic. They were so happy that I was giving this statue as Donna um, to a meditation center in the United States. The other thing interesting, just a little side about this, when um, I was coming home, I'd heard that you could do this. So when I was coming home, I was overweight because of the statue. So in Burma, when I was overweight, I told them why, that I had a, a Buddha statue in there, and they, they don't charge you. <laughs> <laughs> And in Thailand, the same thing happened. <laughs> they love they love the Buddha so much. It's <laughs> also, acts of generosity um, have a tremendous uh, power to transform. This monas this monastery where we um, in Burma again where we. Uh, teach sometimes. There's a story about how the whole um, program started. So the main teacher is the is the um, the, the Sayada, Sayadu Lakana, um, the Burmese master, and we're kind of assistants. And um, what happened was about I think it was about 13 years now, 13 or 14 years ago, a while ago, um, a Westerner named Stephen Smith was. Uh, meditating there and at that point like the Westerners hadn't really gone there and um, he was doing a retreat and uh, there was a young woman named Chet Su who was 
um, working on the road in front of the monastery. So she came from a very poor family. She was uh, 15 years old at the time and uh, had, had to drop out of school to work for her family. And so um, she was carrying the heavy bricks um, back and forth to make, to, to make the road. And apparently she saw um, Steve meditating and apparently he was the first white person she'd ever seen, so that was um, surprising to her. But also she was so appreciative that he would practice. Folks in, in Burma, when you go there and practice, they're so appreciative that you're doing that. And she was so um, happy to see that, that she decided to um, give him something. And what she decided to give him was a can of Coca-Cola. And it took about, I've heard anywhere from three to five days wages to buy one can of Coke because it's, it's from the, you know, import. It's so very expensive. So she did that. She saved enough money to get to offer this Coke to him. And um, he was so touched by that generosity that um, he, he was inspired to give back and started this whole project called the Metadonna Project, which is related to the retreat that we teach where... Um, um, we help support the hospital, um, build a new school, support the, the younger kids in the school, support several um, nunneries, uh, about 100 nuns and several nunneries. So all of this built out of one act of generosity, a can of Coca-Cola. So beautiful, so powerful. So Chetsu is now married and has a couple of children and... Um, so when we go around sometimes to give uh, Donna to the nuns, she brings along her youngest daughter, or her, well, no, not her oldest daughter. So the first time I saw her do this, her daughter was quite young. She, maybe she was a year and a half old, about 18 months. And so she brought her daughter with, and, and we would give the, the Donna to the um, nuns. And so she would put the Donna in her daughter's hands and have her daughter give it to the nuns, you know, like teaching her so young you know, a year and a half to give, to give. It was really beautiful. So when we give, uh, looking at our motivation is um, important. It helps us to purify our giving. So um, at times when we give, we can have mixed motivations. And so we pay attention to that, to, to see um, the relative levels of happiness and suffering that come from different motivations to give. So sometimes we may give and we want something in return. We can feel that as holding on in some way. Or we're reluctant to give. Or we, we don't give the best, we give the okay. Um, or sometimes it flows freely and we see that it comes from compassion and from metta and then we can also feel that. So exploring the um, motivations. One time a number of years ago, um, I lived in a place uh, where I had some birds, bird feeders, and watching birds at a bird feeder is just one of the simple joys I love. Um, most mornings I like to watch the birds and have some tea. And um, so I had these bird feeders. 
but I also lived in an area, I still do, where there's bears, and, and in the springtime they love to uh, take bird feeders. So every once in a while I would lose a bird feeder to a bear, and I remember one time watching this bear, he was, had my bird feeder under his arm, and he was galloping off, you know, on the three other paws with, with my bird feeder. So given that sometimes we lose bird feeders to bears, it's not a cheap hobby. <laughs> bird feeders are actually quite expensive. And so one morning I was sitting there um, watching the birds, and I had this thought. I've spent a lot of money on bird food and bird feeders. Have I gotten my money's worth? Have I gotten enjoyment, enough enjoyment for the money that I've paid? I noticed that there was some tightness and contraction in the mind with these thoughts. <laughs> I didn't particularly like how it felt. So then I tried a different tact. I thought, this bird food is my Donna to the birds, my gift to them so that they can eat and be healthy and happy as birds can be happy. And that felt better, it felt lighter. But then my mind, even without trying, went further. There was just me and the birds, and we were each fulfilling our role in the universe in this wonderful dance. So there wasn't so much a giver or a receiver. There was just um, this dance of things going where they needed to go. And in that sense, my mind felt the freest and the least burdened by self-concern. And I thought afterwards that this reflects kind of the three traditional kinds of giving talked about in, in Buddhism. There's, there's first what's called beggarly giving, and that's where you give, but there's a lot of self-concern. There's either holding on or a bargaining or attachment, like me wanting to get something back for my money. So a lot of self-involved. And even though it's not the purest giving, it's still encouraged. We're still learning to let go. And then the second kind of giving is called friendly giving, and that's where we give more open-heartedly. We give more of um, what we have. It's easier to let go. We start to experience the happiness of giving, the joy of giving. So this was the shift when I started to see the bird food as dana. And the third kind of giving is um, traditionally called kingly giving. But we have a little problem there with both sexism and classism. So <laughs> some people call it um, uh, selfless giving. And this is where we, um, we graciously give what we have. And we don't even have the sense of ourselves so much as the giver and others as the receiver, there's um, less attachment to I. There's, there's a, a letting go of self-concern and just an understanding that we're temporary caregivers of what we have and that things flow where they're needed. The freest kind of giving. A kind of giving that understands um, interdependence and that's free of the constriction around self.
So how are we developing generosity here on retreat? Well, one of the biggest gifts we can give is the development of our own spiritual growth. As we become happier, as we become more aware, as we become more peaceful, we can offer this back to the world. As we become steadier and more understanding, we can offer this gift. As we learn ways to become free of suffering in our hearts and minds, we can offer this freedom to those around us. Gandhi said, I believe if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains that much. So when we develop ourselves spiritually, we are offering a gift to the world. So we're doing this for everyone. We're doing this for our friends and our children and our partners and our co-workers and the guy who cuts us off in traffic. We're doing it for all of them, for all the people that we treat more kindly and for the harm that we avoid. This is the generosity of our practice. And we see that our practice is embedded also in giving and receiving. There's centuries of giving and dana that have brought this practice to where we are. I love to reflect on this, that this whole tradition has been held in generosity for over 2,500 years. And so there's this whole lineage of people behind us that have made it possible for us to be here, people over centuries who have given. It's so beautiful. And even, even just this center that's been around for, what, 36 years now? Something like that. Um, all the people who have supported this center, all the staff that's come through and done the work here, and the staff that's here right now, their gift makes it possible for us to be here. And all those who have donated for our meals, And then we have all the people who at home have covered for us to be here, our family, our co-workers. It's beautiful. And all the um, beings that live in this area, the chipmunks and the fox and the red squirrel, the titmice, the frogs sleeping in the bottom of the pond right now, the bears going into hibernation the unseen beings who protect us, the trees and the sun and the earth and the rain, all supporting us to be here. It's like a circle that keeps going around. I want to end with a story that um, I've really loved from uh, Pablo Neruda a Chilean poet. He was um, 
poet of the people, you could say. At one point it got him into enough trouble that he was exiled. He wound up on the wrong side of the government and then in his old age he, he was allowed to go back to Chile and died there. Um, but a very beloved, beloved poet in Latin America. And, and uh, there's a story about um, one of the things that fueled his, his talent and his ability to give to so many people. So this is um, from Pablo Neruda. One time, investigating in the backyard of our house in Temuco, the tiny objects and minuscule beings of my world, I came upon a hole in one of the boards of the fence. I looked through the hole and saw a landscape like that behind our house, uncared for and wild. I moved back a few steps because I sensed vaguely that something was about to happen. All of a sudden, a hand appeared, a tiny hand of a boy about my own age. By the time I came close again, the hand was gone, and in its place was a marvelous white sheep. The sheep's wool was faded. Its wheels had escaped. All of this only made it more authentic. I had never seen such a wonderful sheep. I looked back through the hole, but the boy had disappeared. I went into the house and brought out a treasure of my own, a pine cone, opened, full of odor and resin, which I adored. I set it down in the same spot and went off with the sheep. I never saw either the hand or the boy again, and I have never again seen a sheep like that either. The toy I lost finally in a fire. But even now, at almost 50 years old, whenever I pass a toy shop, I look furtively into the window but it's no use. They don't make sheep like that anymore. That exchange brought home to me for the first time a precious idea that all of humanity is somehow together. That experience came to me again much later. This time it stood out strikingly against a background of trouble and persecution. It won't surprise you then that I attempted to give something resiny earth-like and fragrant in exchange for human brotherhood. Just as I once left the pine cone by the fence, I have since left my words on the doors of so many people who were unknown to me, people in prison or hunted or alone. This is the great lesson I learned in my childhood in the backyard of a lonely house. Maybe it was nothing but a game two boys played who didn't know each other and wanted to pass to the other some good things in life. Yet maybe this small and mysterious exchange of gifts remained inside me also, deep and indestructible, giving my poetry light. Let's continue sitting for a moment.
May our practice be a gift, deep and indestructible, that brings light to this world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.